Chapter Seven of an Essay in Character, appended to In Flanders Fields and Other Poems. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Connie. An Essay in Character by Andrew McPhail. Chapter Seven: The Old Land and the New. If one were engaged upon a formal work of biography rather than a mere essay in character, it would be just and proper to investigate the family sources from which the individual member is sprung. But I must content myself within the bounds which I have set, and leave the larger task to a more laborious hand. The essence of history lies in the character of the persons concerned, rather than in the feats which they performed. A man neither lives to himself nor in himself. He is indissolubly bound up with his stock, and can only explain himself in terms common to his family. But in doing so, he transcends the limits of history and passes into the realms of philosophy and religion. The life of a Canadian is bound up with the history of his parish, of his town, of his province, of his country. And even with the history of that country in which his family had its birth, the life of John McCrae takes us back to Scotland. In Canada, there has been much writing of history of a certain kind. It deals with events rather than with the subtler matter of people, and has been written mainly for purposes of advertising. If the French made a heroic stand against the Iroquois. The sacred spot is now furnished with an hotel from which a free bus runs to a station upon the line of an excellent railway. Maisonneuve fought his great fight upon a place from which a vicious mayor cut the trees which once sheltered the soldier to make way for a fountain upon which would be raised historical figures in concrete stone. The history of Canada is the history of its people, not of its railways, hotels, and factories. The material exists in written or printed form in the little archives of many a family. Such a chronicle is in possession of the Eckford family, which now, by descent on the female side, bears the honored names of Gow and Macrae. John Eckford had two daughters, in the words of old Jamie Young, the most lovingest girls he ever knew. The younger Janet Simpson was taken to wife by David Macrae, twenty-first January. 1870, and on November 30th, 1872, became the mother of John. To her, he wrote all these letters, glowing with filial devotion, which I am privileged to use so freely. There is in the family a tradition of the single name for the males. It was therefore proper that the elder-born should be called Thomas, more learned in medicine, more assiduous in practice, and more weighty in intellect. Even then, the otherwise more highly gifted John, he too is a professor of medicine and co-author of a profound work with his master and relative by marriage, Sir William Osler. Also, he wore the king's uniform and served in the present war. This John Eckford, accompanied by his two daughters, the mother being dead, his sister, her husband who bore the name of Chisholm. And their numerous children emigrated to Canada, May twenty eighth, eighteen fifty one, in the ship Clutha, which sailed from the Broomielaw bound for Quebec. The consort Wolfville, upon which they had originally taken passage, arrived in Quebec before them, 
and lay in the stream flying the yellow flag of quarantine. Cholera had broken out. Be still and see the salvation of the Lord, were the words of the family morning prayers. In the Clutha also came as passengers James and Mary Gow, their cousin, one Duncan Manack, Mrs. Hanning, who was a sister of Thomas Carlyle, and her two daughters. On the voyage they escaped the usual hardships, and their fare appears to us in these days to have been abundant. The weekly ration was three quarts of water, two ounces of tea, one half pound of sugar, one half pound molasses, three pounds of bread, one pound of flour, two pounds of rice, and five pounds of oatmeal. The reason for this migration is succinctly stated by the head of the house. I know how hard it was for my mother to start me, and I wanted land for my children, and a better opportunity for them. And yet his parents in their time appear to have started him pretty well. Although his father was obliged to confess, I never had more of this world's goods than to bring up my family by the labor of my hands honestly. But it is more than my master owned, who had not where to lay his head. They allowed him that very best means of education, a calmness of the senses as he herded sheep on the Cheviot Hills. They put him to the university in Edinburgh as a preparation for the ministry, and supplied him with ample oatmeal, peas meal, bannocks, and milk. In that great school of divinity, he learned the Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. He studied Italian and French under Sir Wren, him of blessed memory, even unto this day. John Eckford, in 1839, married Margaret Christie, and he went far afield for a wife, namely from Newbigin and Forfar, where for fourteen years he had his one and only charge, to Strathmiglo in Fife. The marriage was fruitful and a happy one, although there is a hint in the record of some religious difference, upon which one would like to dwell if the subject were not too esoteric for this generation. The minister showed a certain indulgence, and so long as his wife lived, he never employed the paraphrases in the solemn worship of the sanctuary. She was a woman of a provident mind. Shortly after they were married, he made the discovery that she had prepared the grave clothes for him as well as for herself. Too soon, after only eight years, it was her fate to be shrouded in them. After her death, probably because of her death, John Eckford emigrated to Canada. To one who knows the early days in Canada, there is nothing new in the story of this family. They landed in Montreal July 11, 1851, 44 days out from Glasgow. They proceeded by steamer to Hamilton, the fare being about a dollar for each passenger. The next stage was to Guelph, then on to Durham, and finally they came to the end of their journeying, near Walkerton in Bruce County, in the primeval forest, from which they cut out a home for themselves and for their children. It was the winter of the deep snow. One transcription from the record will disclose the scene. At length a grave was dug on a knoll in the bush, at the foot of a great maple with a young snow-laden hemlock at the side. The father and the eldest brother carried the box along the shoveled path. The mother close behind was followed by the two families. The snow was falling heavily. At the grave, John Eckford read a psalm and prayed that they might be enabled to believe the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting unto them that fear him. 
john mccrae himself was an indefatigable churchgoer there is a note in childish characters written from edinburgh in his thirteenth year on sabbath went to service four times there the statement stands in all its austerity a letter from a chaplain is extant in which a certain mild wonder is expressed at the regularity in attendance of an officer of field rank to his sure taste in poetry the hymns were a sore trial only forty minutes are allowed for the service he said and it is sad to see them snap it up by these poor bald four-line things on easter sunday nineteen fifteen he wrote we had a church parade this morning the first since we arrived in france truly if the dead rise not we are of all men the most miserable on the funeral service of a friend he remarks for as much as it hath pleased almighty god what a summary of the whole thing that is on many occasions he officiated in the absence of the chaplains who in those days would have had as many as six services a day in civil life in montreal he went to church in the evening and sat under the reverend james barclay of st paul's now designated by some at least as st andrews end of the old land and the new recording by connie